Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like John was saying, if you're new or visiting, especially welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And again, like John was saying, small groups is really the best way to do that. And so uh, if you haven't checked one of those out, we'd encourage you to get plugged in with one this fall. Uh, we're diving back into the book of Romans. And so it's, it's a great time to uh, get connected with the group and to get plugged in and to think about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the context of community. And so love to invite you into that. Uh, also love to invite you into our brand new sermon series we're starting this morning, uh, working our way through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And so for the next few months, we're just going to be going verse by verse through these two letters by the Apostle Paul to the young church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And if you're new, it's important to understand that that's kind of our MO around here, right? We Sometimes we do more thematic series that help us to think about different important ideas or themes that run the course of Scripture that we see throughout those kinds of things, like we did this summer in our Jesus on Every Page series where we saw how the gospel is not just in the New Testament, it's at the heart of the Old Testament as well, and the person and the work of Jesus is the, the central point of the whole Bible. But by and large, what we end up doing here is we just kind of pick books of the Bible and work our way through them. And, and there's a lot of reasons why we do that, but the, but the main one is simply that uh, what I think and what I have to say is wildly unimportant. And yet what God thinks and what he has to say is more important than absolutely anything else. And so the best way for us to prioritize God's priorities, the best way for us to make sure that the, the thing that shapes our time together is his thoughts, not our own, is to let his word be the thing that does that. And so we just kind of go verse by verse through God's word together and see what it has to say and how it changes our lives, right? Besides the fact that I'm just not that creative and coming up with interesting sermon series ideas is way harder than you might think it is, right? And so we're just going to take, take God's word. It's better anyways, right? It's any ideas I could come up with. So all that said, I'm really excited to study the book of Thessalonians with you this fall, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, two letters by the Apostle Paul. But before we dive into these letters, I want to just spend a little bit of time kind of setting up a little bit of the background that's going to help us to uh, approach these letters with, from the right perspective. You see, we first hear about the city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. When Paul visits the city while he's on his second missionary journey there, and he's bringing some guys that he's pastoring with, he's training these young pastors, uh, Timothy and Silas, and, and while they're there, what we find is that uh, they, they're preaching the gospel, and we hear a large number of Jews and Greeks and even prominent women in the city, they come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the gospel uh, in Acts chapter 17. But what happens is we find out that Paul only spends just a few weeks in Thessalonica, a month at most, right? Because the Jews in the city who'd rejected the message of the gospel, they basically run him out of town and they kind of start a citywide riot and they arrest the person who's hosting Paul and his companions, this guy named Jason, and, and they accuse them all of treasonously defying Caesar for proclaiming that Jesus indeed was king. And that was especially a big deal in Thessalonica because rumors about sedition would have really jeopardized their special status and standing as a, as a uh, quote-unquote free city uh, from, in Rome. And, and so they weren't going to have any of that. And so after getting run out of town, Paul eventually makes his way to the city of Corinth where he spends about 18 months ministering. And, but while he's there, he is still deeply concerned about this young church in Thessalonica and that he'd been forced to leave far too soon. And 
And we learn in chapter 3 of this letter, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, but despite his deep desire to return to them, he had been repeatedly blocked from doing so. And so, fearing the worst, he, send, he decides to send uh, Timothy, who, young pastor, like I said, he'd been training and who was with him the first time they were in Thessalonica. He sends Timothy to go back and to check on the new believers that are there and see how they're doing and encourage them and just like, He's worried about them. And so to Paul's great relief, the report that Timothy returns not only alleviates his fears, but it is a source of deep encouragement to the Apostle Paul, right? Because although these young believers in Christ had been facing harsh persecution for their newfound allegiance to Jesus, they weren't only surviving in the faith, they were thriving so much so, right, that the reports of their life-transforming faith in Jesus were beginning to reach the entire country that they were in, this huge region that they were in, hundreds of miles around, were hearing about the work that God was doing in the lives of these new believers who had put their faith in this guy named Jesus. And so while Timothy's report was largely positive, there's a few concerns that he does bring back to the Apostle Paul that kind of prompt Paul to write this first letter to the Thessalonians, chief of which were some really pressing questions that the believers there had about Jesus' return, right? It's the day when Jesus promised that he would personally come again to usher in his kingly rule and reign once and for all and set all evil to bear and to bring all things to rightness. And and Jesus' second coming is this central theme that works its way throughout the whole letter. In fact, it's the central theme of both of the letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It comes up in literally every single one of the chapters, right? All of them, there's something about Jesus' return in every one of the chapters. And we'll get more into the specific questions that the Thessalonians had as we get to chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians and the first part of uh, 2 Thessalonians. But for now, what you really need to know is that the Thessalonians, they needed to be reassured. They needed to be reassured that, that the confidence, about the confidence and the hope with which they could approach that day the day that Jesus would return. But what's so important for us to understand as we begin to study these letters is that in writing to them about this, about Jesus' return, what Paul's not trying to do is just like pass along some information that's meant to help them on some future day. Instead, what he's trying to show them and to us is how the the confident hope that we have in Jesus' return is actually meant to transform the way that we live, not just on some future day, but the way that we live each and every day. You see, faith in Jesus' return isn't meant to just produce kind of sentimental hopefulness for the future. It's It's meant to produce the kind of hope that transforms our lives in real and profound ways. In other words, faith in Jesus' return it produces a sanctifying hope in our lives. The kind of hope that causes us to increasingly look more and more like Jesus. That's why that's the name of our series this, this, uh, this fall as we work through this. We're going to see that the, the whole point of the book of Thessalonians is that we might have a sanctifying hope in Jesus. That the promise of his return that it might keep transforming our lives. And throughout our study, we're going to see a bunch of specific and practical ways that hope in his return is meant to transform our lives and make us look more like Jesus. But as we begin our study this morning in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, 
what we're going to see Paul doing is, is reassuring the Thessalonian church that the, that the reason why they can approach Jesus' return with confidence and hope instead of fear and worry and anxiety is rooted in the, the reception and the response to the message of the gospel. Right? The way that they received the message of the gospel and the way that they responded to it Paul's going to help them see this morning that that's compelling evidence that they belong to God and that they're loved by him, that they don't have anything to be afraid of. And as we examine Paul's words this morning, his, his encouragement to the Thessalonians, essentially what we're going to see is what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be known by God and loved by him and how that happens. And, and my hope for you this morning is that, that you might see that just like it was for the Thessalonians, the, the transforming work of the gospel in our lives is meant to be evidence to us, right, of God's, that we belong to God, that we're loved by him, and so that we might have the kind of confident hope for his return that we're meant to have. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. Uh, it's such an encouraging and yet challenging passage and uh, man, I just can't wait to show it to you. So let's, let's pray, and we'll dive into God's Word this morning. God, thanks so much for you and for our time together in uh, this letter that you wrote through the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica 2,000 some odd years ago. We pray, Lord Jesus, as we come to study your Word this morning, God, we just humbly ask that you might be shaping us through it, that the words that were written to this church so long ago might be good news to our hearts as well. And that as we remember the transforming work of the gospel in our lives and its power to bring about new life in us, God, we pray that it might well up in us a gratitude and a confidence in you, in your saving work in our lives, and in the hope that we have for your return. And so, um, Jesus, for our study this morning and for all our time together in this series, might you indeed produce a sanctifying hope in us because of the gospel. And so we pray all that uh, in your name. Amen. All right, well, like I mentioned, this morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 this morning, verses 1 through 10. reads this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. For you know how we lived among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy that was given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. All right, so Paul opens this letter to the Thessalonians, and he's basically just like 
gushing with like praise and thanksgiving for this church to God, right? He's praising their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, their endurance that's been inspired by hope in Jesus, right? See, much like the Philippian church was, this group of believers was apparently a huge source of encouragement to the Apostle Paul, so much so that in verse 7, he refers to them as a model for all believers throughout Greece, right? Something he doesn't say about literally any other church in the entire New Testament. And so the praise that he has for this young church is high, right? He is so encouraged by the work that God's doing in them. But what's clear that Paul is most thankful for, what brings him the most encouragement and the most joy, is what he writes in verse four. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, that brothers and sisters language, that's, he uses that language like 20 some odd times in the chapter. It's just like language of family and connection and deep relationship. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You see, Paul's just gotten this report back from Timothy about how these Thessalonian, this Thessalonian church is doing, and the big E on the I chart for him, right? The, the thing that this report has really confirmed in his heart and his mind is that the people there who'd heard the gospel and who'd responded and said they put their faith in Jesus, they really had come into a saving relationship with God. They had been loved and chosen by him. And to you and me, that language of loved and chosen, it's not necessarily that big of a deal, but for a guy like Paul and for many of the new believers in Thessalonica who were from Jewish background, that language of that language, loved and chosen, that's language of God's covenantal saving relationship with Israel, with his people. Right? It's language that comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 7 when Moses, he tells the Israelites this, he says, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. The Lord didn't set his affection on you. He, he didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. You see, so when Paul is saying that he's sure that these young followers of Jesus in Thessalonica are loved by God, are chosen by him, he's taking language that's been exclusively used for God's covenant people, the Israelites, and he's applying it to this new group of believers who's full of all kinds of non-Jewish people, all kinds of Gentiles, and he's essentially saying to them, listen, you guys, Israel's story has become your story. The God who chose the Israelites to be his people and to rescue them, not because of anything about them, not because they were worthy, not because they deserved it, but simply because he chose to love them, that he has clearly chosen to love you. And he's chosen to bring you into a kind of saving relationship with him. And Paul goes on in verses 5 and 10 to, to ground his confidence in the Thessalonians' saving relationship with God in two main things, right? He gives kind of two big evidences for his confidence in their, in their saving relationship with God. In verse 5, he says, the first one is this. He says, he says right, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. For you know how we lived among you for your sake. See, what he's saying is that, is that this, this news about Jesus, this good news about Jesus that Paul and Silas and Timothy came preaching months, months prior, it wasn't just an interesting idea. 
right? It, it wasn't just some kind of new philosophy. It wasn't a new way of looking at life. It wasn't just a new system of morality. It wasn't some eloquent or inspirational words. It was something altogether different. It was indeed the very power of God. See, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul describes the gospel the message about the person and the work of Jesus, he says that it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Notice that he doesn't say that the gospel, it brings power, or that the gospel leads to power, or that it results in power. He says the gospel is power. See, the good news about Jesus is the very power of God to transform and renew and to save people. It's a gospel that is unlike any other message, any other idea, any other claim. See, the proclamation that in the person of Jesus, God the king and creator of the whole universe became a man and he entered into human history to live the life that you and I were supposed to live, created to live, and to die the death that we deserve to die so that rebels uh, like you and me would committed mutiny against God by rejecting his kingly rule in our lives and enthroning ourselves as God's. Right, that we might be forgiven and cleansed and brought into right relationship with him. You see, the message of the gospel is altogether unique. There's nothing like it in all the world. And when that message comes barreling into your heart, Paul says, it's not just words. Oh, it's a power. The kind of power that transforms people. And Paul goes on to describe how this saving power of God, that is the message of the gospel, was made manifest to the Thessalonians by the Holy Spirit, in and through the people who brought the message to them. All right, in other words, he, he, the, the God, that God the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that he's the one who makes the gospel powerful. And he's the one who empowers people like Paul and Silas and Timothy to proclaim that message, not with mere words, although they did use words, but with the kind of conviction and passion and integrity of life that was compelling evidence of its authenticity. So you can, you can tell when someone really believes what they're talking about. But when their life affirms the words that they're speaking, it removes all doubt. One commentator put it this way, human words expressing the gospel would have been useless had they not been accompanied by the power of the Spirit and by the consequent sense of conviction and assurance on the part of the preachers. Essentially what Paul is saying in verse 5 is that the, the first reason why he's so sure that of their salvation is because both the message of the gospel and the messengers who brought it to them were the real deal. It wasn't some knockoff, cheap, hack version of the gospel Right, the message they, proclaim, gave, they came proclaiming wasn't, hey, do this, and then God's going to love you. Hey, believe this, right? And then you'll, you'll be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise, right? That's not the message he came proclaiming. No, the message they brought was the real deal, the good news about the person and the work of Jesus to save sinners who repent and to put their faith in him. And that had been proclaimed to these Thessalonians, and it had been demonstrated to them. As one commentator put it, the gospel came to them, and as a result, they had come to God. See, so that leads us to the, the second reason Paul gives for his confidence in their salvation, right? He lists the what he, what he tells them is that the, the second reason why he's so confident is because not just the way that they received the gospel, but the way in which they had responded to it. 
See, the passage is full of examples that describe the Thessalonian church's response to the message of the gospel that had been proclaimed to them. But Paul sums it all up, I think, best in verses 9 through 10 when he describes how the the reports about their life-transforming faith in Jesus that were being made known throughout the region, they told about how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. See, Paul, in that verses, those verses, he uses these three phrases to, to basically sum up the way that they responded to the good news about Jesus. Right? And the first is that he says that they turned to God from idols. See, Thessalonica was a city that was chock full of all kinds of counterfeit gods and goddesses. Right? Archaeological evidence indicates that the people worshipped many of the various Greco-Roman deities, whether that was Dionysus or Asclepius or Aphrodite or Demeter or Zeus. Right? The Egyptian gods Isis and Serapis were also kind of popular and had temples in the area, not to mention the imperial cult and with its worship to the Roman emperor Caesar as god. Right? The worship of all of these counterfeit false gods was woven into the very fabric of everyday life. Right? Business, for the most part, was done in the temples. And so if you wanted to make a business deal, you'd go to the temple and you'd hash out your details and then you'd offer a sacrifice to your god of choice as kind of a blessing over the decisions you've made. Or if you were going on a business trip, right, you'd, you'd first go to one of these pagan temples and you'd pray to the, one of the gods and ask them for safe travels. Right? If you wanted to start a family, you'd, you'd go straight to Aphrodite's temple, the goddess of sexuality and fertility, and you'd make a sacrifice and you'd pray to her that she might bless your wife's womb, or if you were sick, you'd go to the, the Greek goddess Asclepios, and, and you'd, he was the god of medicine, and you'd make a sacrifice to him, and you'd try to get him to heal you and to restore you. And everyone would go to Caesar's temple to pay him honor, to express their allegiance and their devotion to him and his supposedly divine power. And this is just how life worked in Thessalonica, right? Idol worship was baked into every aspect of their lives which made turning away from these gods basically unheard of. One pastor I listened to this week described it'd be like if somebody today just kind of gave up the internet. Like, like you could do it, right? But it would suck, right? Like it would be really hard. Like the internet is just baked into every aspect of our lives, right? Like how do people get a hold of you, right? How do you do work? How do you do school? Like, how, like just basic functions in life. Like how do you do any of that? Like it would just be utterly life-transforming. You'd just be like, nobody does that. That's not, that's not a thing. And so when people heard the message that Jesus was the true and living God, the king who had come, to, come in love to rescue and redeem them, and, and they chose to reject the idolatry worship of all these kind of counterfeit gods so deeply ingrained in their culture and in their everyday lives and instead choose to worship Jesus, it was compelling evidence of their faith in Jesus. Because you don't just do that on a whim. It was costly. It was deep. See, but the truth is that turning from idols is a mark of true saving faith in every generation, not just in theirs. You see, and while the idols you and I tend to worship today are maybe a little more sophisticated than they were in the first century Thessalonica, see, turning from them are just as striking See, to choose a life of sacrificial service to God and to others instead of being consumed by the personal pleasures and comfort, that's always surprising. Right? To choose to live in light of God's approval of you instead of being driven and consumed by the need for the approval of others, right? that, that stands out. 
right, to choose dependence on God and on his power to bring about his purposes, right, instead of reliance on your own power and your own influence and your own efforts to bring about the results that you think fit. That's not easy to do, right, to choose trust and reliance in God instead of the need for control of all the variables in your life. That's not normal, right? In our world, you double down on power and comfort and control and approval, And turning away from those things, it only happens when you realize that none of them can help you. That none of them can give you the thing you're after, that they can't save you, they can't heal you, they can't restore you, they cannot satisfy you, they have no life in them. They're false gods and false saviors. See, but the Thessalonians' transformation, it wasn't just about turning away from all these false saviors. It looked like them turning towards God and serving him. That's the second thing that Paul describes, how they responded to the gospel. They turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, true repentance, real saving faith, is not just about acknowledging you have some false saviors. It's about turning to the one true savior, the only one who can actually save you. It's about, see, the word that's rendered as serve there, Right? It's not like, hey, uh, I like vote for you, right? or I, I have like admiration for you. Right? The word that's rendered as serve there, to, it's about giving your life back to someone. It's about ser- it's, it basically means to serve as a slave, and it underlines this wholehearted nature of Christian service. John, John Stott put it this way. He said, we could say that faith in Jesus is the exchange of one slavery for another, so long as we add that this new slavery is actually real freedom. Tim Keller adds this. He says, people tend to believe that you can either have freedom or you can have Christ. But the gospel shows you that you can either have slavery or Christ. For he is the only master that won't tyrannize you. And he, it's only in service to him that you find real freedom. See, the Thessalonians had spent their lives in constant fear of these volatile and capricious gods that they had worshipped. They're serving them out of fear and out of worry and out of obligation and just out of, just like I said, just straight up fear. And yet the God of the gospel, Jesus, is altogether different. He's not vindictive and cruel and capricious. Instead, he's characterized by a love that is so fierce and ferocious that it led him to die for a people, not who loved him back, but who had rejected him altogether. And when you see that that's who God is and you put your faith in him, what happens is that that leads you like it did for the many of the Thessalonians who heard the gospel and responded to it, not only to changing the object of your worship and of your wholehearted service, but it leads you to the third thing Paul says. It leads you to eagerly wait for his return. See, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You know, you and I, we tend to look at that word waiting, and to us, waiting tends to be a passive thing, right? Working is active, waiting is passive. But if the words of thanksgiving and praise that Paul has for this church throughout the opening of this chapter tell you anything, right, is that the kind of waiting that the Thessalonians were characterized was anything but passive, right? Verse two, they're laboring, 
They're working, they're enduring. Their faith wasn't some compartmentalized, head-level agreement with some intellectual ideas. It was a kind of faith that was transforming their lives in real ways. I remember recently seeing a clip of a former late-night host, uh, Trevor Noah. He was talking about kind of the faith that he grew up with and the version of Christianity that he grew up with. And, and basically what he said is, it was great. All you had to do is just like believe that God died for you and like you were good. Like you shouldn't have to do anything else. Like you just believe in Jesus and you're good and that's all you needed, right? See, the problem with that is that that's not the message of the gospel at all. See, the truth is that saving faith is always changing faith. And if your faith in Jesus is not transforming your life, if it's not reorienting your desires and your values and the way you spend your time and money and effort and energy, right, it doesn't have to be overnight. It's not like God does that transforming work just like instantly in a moment. He does it slowly and he does it over time. But if your faith in Jesus is not changing you, it is not saving you. See, if you come face to face with the power of the gospel, there are only two options. You can reject it as a lie or you can fall face down in front of Jesus the King. And you can offer him everything you have and all that you are. And this kind of like nominal indifference where you just kind of like God, like you show up on church on Sundays and God's kind of like a, like just like an advisor that helps you out with decisions or like kind of like a bank of blessings you go to to try to like pull out good favors when you need them. What that, what that reveals, if that, if that characterizes the way that you relate to God, it just reveals you have never encountered the real gospel. Because the real thing you can't respond like that to. You can reject it wholesale, or you can receive it and be transformed by it, but you can't be indifferent to it. See, and when you see the power of the gospel for what it is, when you see that work in your life, when it starts transforming you, it's going to lead increasingly to you becoming more and more like Jesus. Just like it did for these Thessalonians, Paul prays, who Paul says they became joy-filled imitators of them and of the Lord in the midst of severe suffering, through whom the message of the gospel was ringing out. See, the gospel was filling them with joy in the midst of all kinds of persecution and suffering, and it was continually overflowing out of them into the lives of others. That verb ringing out in verse 8, it's a very unique word. It's the word that we get our English word echo from. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the transforming effect of the gospel's saving power in their lives, it was emanating, it was reverberating out from Thessalonica throughout the hills and the valleys of Macedonia and Achaia and beyond. Well, we'll see later on in this letter there are a few believers right, who really needed some correction along these lines because their version of waiting looked a lot more like laziness. By and large, the lives lived by the Thessalonian believers in anticipation of Jesus' return were anything but passive. No, they were characterized by wholeheartedly giving themselves in worship, serving the living and true God who had come to save them from their sin and their rebellion. You see, the Thessalonians weren't relying on their ability to be good enough. They weren't relying on their ability to act right enough. 
They weren't relying on their ability to make up for all of the wrongs that they had done. Instead, they had pinned their hope on Jesus, their faith in him as the one and only thing that might deliver them from future judgment. And Paul reminds them in this first chapter that when he returns, they have no reason to fear. They have no reason to fear. As one pastor put it, because in Jesus, their judgment day had been moved from the future to the past. You see, that's what the gospel does. Faith in the person and the work of Jesus. It moves our judgment day from the future to the past. And it places that day squarely on the day that Jesus himself hung on the cross for you and me as he received the penalty that our sin and our rebellion deserved. And so the reason why followers of Jesus, those who have put their hope in him, can look forward to his future return without any kind of fear, without, with just a day that's full of confidence and hope, why that future day can be good news for you is because on the cross, your judgment day got moved from the future to the past. When you put your faith in him, it changes everything about that future day, and it changes everything about the day we have now. You see, and it's the, the rescuing love of Jesus that you and I remember and celebrate every week when we take communion. See, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. You're not getting back in his good graces when you do it, right? Instead, communion is an opportunity for us to remember that the king and the creator of the universe came into this world to be killed by his own creation, that he shed his body and his blood so that all those who put their faith in him might escape his righteous wrath for their sin and might have confident hope that produces new, transformed lives of joyful service unto him in response to all that he has done for you. And so if you put your faith in Jesus to be for you, your judgment day moved from the future to the past to be your hope for life and forgiveness. Then, Or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I want to encourage you, go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration and a remembrance of all that he is and all that he has done for you. But if you're here this morning and you you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what that means or, or you're not sure if following him, if you're ready for that or if surrendering to him as king and Lord and serving him as God is worth giving up the other things that you are living for, then I just want you to know we are so glad that you are here. And you're welcome here, and your questions are welcome, and the doubts that you have are welcome, and the process that you're in and figuring out what it means to follow him, you're welcome here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion, because God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts in his work for you on your behalf completely, who relies on him alone to be the thing that moves your judgment day from future to past. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is. And we would love to help you get to know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, 
talk with God. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe what you're realizing for the first time is that although you have been around religion your whole life, you don't really know Jesus yet. You've never really become a Christian. And your life isn't any different than it was before, and you don't serve God, you just serve yourself. And you're not eagerly waiting for him. You either don't care or you're just afraid. And the truth is that if nothing changes, when Jesus returns to usher in his kingdom, as he repeatedly, emphatically promises that he will, then that will not be a good day. It will, instead, it will not be a day of rescue. It will be a day of wrath and judgment. And the reason why you are here this morning, hear me, the reason why you are here this morning it's because God in love for you is pursuing you. You might think you're looking for him, but the truth is he is looking for you. And he in love for you is calling out to you to come to him in faith and to repentance, to reject just religiosity and instead to turn from the idols and the false saviors you're clinging to and to trust him alone to be your forgiver and your leader and your rescuer and to put all of your hope, not in what you bring to the table, but in all he has done for you. My prayer has been for you this morning that you might go this morning from uncertainty and from fear to a confident hope. Not because of yourself, but because of Jesus. Because you put your faith in him, in the message of the gospel, in the true and living God. And so some of you are here this morning, and you're here because you need to find faith in him for the first time. But others of you are here, and you are just like the Thessalonians. You have put your hope in Jesus. You heard the good news of the gospel at some point, and the Holy Spirit, he caused that gospel to be good news in your heart. You didn't convince yourself of it. You didn't work your way into it. He caused it to be good news to you. And, and he is at work transforming you, probably not as fast as you want. And probably not in as linear a fashion as you were hoping for, right? But you can look back and you can see that God's changing you and he's doing it on the inside and he's doing it on the outside. Some of you are here this morning and you are so caught up with fear of, of like, you, just, you don't know where you're at with God because you live your life like in, stuck in like the day view of the stock chart. In your spiritual life and the day of a stock career, if you looked at that, it feels like it's just like this endless, tumultuous up and down. You're like, I just don't know, I don't have any confidence. What happens is if you zoom out on your phone, right, from the one day to the one year, it looks a lot different. And those peaks and valleys that felt just enormous, like you just, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, I don't even know where I'm going, right? What you find is that there are these like little blips on the radar. And by and large, God at work, and he is at work transforming you. And it's not always the same direction. And there's points where you're not headed the, the way you want to go. But by and large, he is at work transforming you. And the invitation is that in the midst of your worries and your fears about your standing and your status with God, that you might look back and that you might remember how the power of the gospel became good news to you. And how it started, a transforming work in your life that isn't done yet, but is indeed evidence that you belong to God.
that you are safe with him, that he's chosen to love you and bring you into his family, and that he who began a good work in you will absolutely be faithful to bring it to completion. And so like Paul intended his words in this chapter to be for the Thessalonians, might they be for you as well an encouragement. That the good news of his divine transforming love for you, that it would bring you hope, the kind of hope that has an ongoing sanctifying effect in your life, the kind of hope that rings out from you all around you, proclaiming the power of the gospel to save sinners who don't deserve it and aren't worthy of it, but who have been chosen and loved by God anyway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful to get to come to it this morning as we see a reminder of these reassurances that we have. God, the good news of the gospel, it changes and it transforms and that transforming work is it's inevitable in us when we know you. And so, God, we pray that the transforming work of the gospel and the authenticity of its message, that it might be good news to our hearts this morning that remind us of your choosing, saving love for us. That it might well up in us a gratitude for you and a confidence that comes because only you can do that work in us. We don't do it in ourselves. And so, Jesus, might. Might your work in us, moving our judgment day from future to past, might it be good news that fills us with a sanctifying hope for the future, transforming our lives each and every day. We pray that you do it. Amen.